This is the Emmaus Colloquy, and today I'm speaking with Nick Powell. Nick is planting Hope City Church in Clinton, Iowa. He was a member of Frontier Church in Des Moines, Iowa, and was my small group leader before he went out to plant. Today we take time to discuss church planting and what he has learned in the process of planting a small town Iowa church. So anyway, I saw that saw that you got published in the uh, Clinton newspaper. Yeah, that was a a letter to the editor. So yeah, that was a great article. Thanks, man. I've been trying to grow in my craft of writing. I feel like it. I don't know. I like. I think that writing is one of those things that can really influence a lot of people. Because I mean, I love woodworking. I was talking to Holly about this. I love woodworking, but. You know, me woodworking in my basement to build a, a shelf for our house, like, that's cool. It's good recreation, good for the family, but it's, as far as pastoral ministry, bang for buck goes, like, growing in my craft of articulating mm-hmm. thoughts on it, writing, it's just a lot more beneficial for my vocation. So I, I try to make a disciplined effort of it, like, recently, like, the last few weeks. I'm like, all right, I'm going to write. It's very so, Piper-like of you. <laughs> Piper, wasn't it? <laughs> doesn't doesn't he always he I think I've seen several published letters to the editor by him for like the Minneapolis Star or whatever it is or the St. Cloud Star or I don't know what it is up there but yeah he's written several yeah. like that I think so I've read that I've read some of his stuff plus I don't know like the other day it's like preaching you know I'm still trying to get my legs under me with preaching and I'm tr- I've been trying a lot of different things just like just like homiletic techniques or whatever just like oh w- what translates well when I'm buying the pulpit mm-hmm. and this last week I just basically read my manuscript and you know I was I mean I was leaning into the, the Lord and depending on the spirit and trying to I was listening for when I felt like I needed to go extemporaneous and things like that mm-hmm. but I basically just read my manuscript uh, and it was one of the best sermons I've preached. Was that the and one? Is that the one that you just that? Pre- was this the, the one that you just preached on uh, love your enemies? Yeah. So I just listened yeah. to that, and I wanted oh, really? I cool. wanted to talk to you about it actually. So yeah. so good. I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to say. You know, anytime you give someone a compliment, you always run the risk of it sounding like a backhanded compliment. You know, like you you see someone that's lost a bunch of weight and you go, man, you've lost a lot of weight. It's just another way of saying, man, you were really fat before, you know, which is not really the intent. But, you know, but um, so I run the risk of saying that. But because I've always enjoyed your preaching and your teaching, I've always, you know, seen that you're gifted and benefited and from your preaching and teaching but listening to you preach this last week i was like holy cow did he take some steroids or something like what happened (laughs) like that was the most that was the most clear and compelling sermon i've heard you preach and i was just i I was i was very encouraged because i haven't heard you preach in a while i know you've posted them i just hadn't had time to listen and uh, so yeah. when I pulled this one up and I listened, it was so I haven't heard any of your growth since the last time I heard you preach. And here and this was like, holy cow, he's been working. <laughs> and it's obvious. Yeah. It's obvious. You, I've been just super encouraging to hear you grow that much in the last time. I, not, not that, you know, it's like I said, that could sound like a backhanded comment, compliment. I don't mean it that way. Uh, but it, it you, you, the Lord definitely has been blessing your efforts. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I definitely have been, it's been a, a process of trying to understand, like, you know, you feel like maybe something was weak. You know, you preach, you've probably done this a lot of times. You preach a sermon and you just feel like something was off. Yeah. But you're not really sure what it was. Like, and you know, it's not just like maybe you're, you didn't have enough caffeine or something. It's like <laughs> yeah. there was something not working in the sermon. Yeah. And I, so I've been feeling that every sermon there's like some element of it that just wasn't working and uh i i think part of it is just it's too like they've been too dense Mm -hmm. like i haven't been i haven't been taking it i felt like i was trying to do too much yeah in every sermon 
and and so I tried to simplify like what my main goal was mm-hmm. when I sat down. Like, so I put on more limits than normal. Like I was like, like my existential outline is usually done on Google Docs, mm-hmm. and I have this huge like template that I use from the hermeneutics class. You know, the, yeah. the grasping the text in their town and then our town and all that. And so there's usually by the end of the existential outline, I have quite a bit of material there. Yeah, and then. And then carrying that over into a sermon outline, I found myself trying to use too much of that information mm-hmm. rather than just letting it inform some of the main points. And so I went in and I said, I'm just going to do that exegetical outline on paper. And, and so that limiting factor, like I didn't write as much stuff down. Yeah. And then, uh, and then I decided I'm just going to, you know, I think it's you that said, um, you were saying how the Puritans, their basic outline was, um, Read the text, um, exposit the text, and then apply the text. Mm-hmm. And that was, I went into the, I've been trying to go in with that more of a mentality of like, all right, just explain to these people what these verses mean, and then and then get to the application based on like, how does this point to Christ and the gospel, and then mm-hmm. how do they live that out? And I feel like, that, I don't know. So that... That was what I tried to go in, just simpler. I just tried to be simpler. And that helped me, I think, be more compelling. Or at least the outline seemed to flow better. So Yeah, and I think I think that's just one of those things that just comes with experiences, you know, because one of the things that happens when you do faithful work and study on a text, you end up getting an exorbitant amount of material, and then you're trying to figure out how to fit all of that into a 35, 40 minute sermon. And then it ends up super dense and clunky and sometimes hard to follow. Um, And especially like, especially like before you were sent out to plant, you would have a month or more to prepare a sermon. So you not only have all of that material, but you have weeks of meditation on that text. So the number of thoughts that you have are, incredible and then you're trying to weed through all of that and it can be i think it's it can actually be more difficult to preach once a quarter than it does every week because when you're going once a week you only have the opportunity to think about that text for a week so there's only so many thoughts you can have in that week and so there's just less to work through which obviously there's a downside to that too but um but yeah anyway yeah totally and not only that when you have a lot of time to prepare for a lot of you know newer preachers when they're starting, they just overthink a text too. I know that that happens to me all the time. Oh, where I just overthink it, overcomplicate it. Yeah. yeah, I did that two. I think it was two weeks ago. I I was preaching on uh, uh, the text of uh, the non-retaliation one. Turn yes. the other cheek, where Jesus says, "Turn the other cheek," and I was like, I've been really trying to think through. Um, you know, like the, the commentary I'm reading that I find most helpful is Jonathan Pennington's uh, Sermon on the Mount, A Vision for Human Flourishing. And he makes the argument basically that Jesus, when he's talking in the Sermon on the Mount, when he references the Old Testament, he's he really doesn't mean that he came to abolish that. He came to fulfill it and show mm-hmm. where it ultimately points. And so when he says, you have heard it said, I for an eye tooth for a tooth, he's not saying that that was bad. He was saying that that's, yeah. that's not the deepest understanding of that of the law mm-hmm. and uh and so that really makes you bump into the whole like well if i'm turning the other cheek i'm not always turning the other cheek you know what i mean mm-hmm. like if you really want to implement the sermon on the mount into your everyday life um then yeah you have to a serious reader would say well when don't when is it appropriate not to and what are the implications for that and so then I started going on this rabbit trail down, like reading about two kingdoms theology. Okay. And uh, anyways, this got out of control. I was like, there's <laughs> no way that I'm going to hold all this together in a sermon. So I just ended up, um, I didn't recognize this until mid-sermon, actually. <laughs> I was like probably a quarter of the way through, and then I just dissed it. And so I dissed the most of the stuff I had, and I just jumped right to the gospel. Yeah, and I, I was like, "Look, this is this is how you see the gospel in this text," and um, and then I walked away from the 
sermon feeling crappy about the the sermon flow, like the craft of the sermon. Uh-huh. But I felt good about being faithful to preaching the main thing. So yeah, I don't know. No, I mean Anyways, it's it's right. like you overthink things and it leads down the rabbit trails. Yeah, and well, and the thing is, is that when you have experiences like that, that I mean. It's just like with any anything that you do in terms of a craft in life, you you know this from woodworking, you know, you mm-hmm. you get halfway into a project and realize, oh man, I gotta abandon this, but you learn things from it and you know how to avoid that in the future. And that's just it's the same thing with preaching. You know, you, right. you you will eventually get a feel for not only your people but yourself, you just your own preaching style. That when you're doing prep, like what you'll you'll get that sense when you, in your preparation that oh man, this is this is going to be a rough ride if I continue down this road, <laughs> and, and you'll you'll realize it, and because you've experienced it in the pulpit, you'll be more sensitive to it to that sensation in your preparation, and so that'll that'll yeah. work itself out. That's a good way to put that sensitive to the sensation, yeah, because I am noticing that so much of good good work is you know instilling inside of yourself subconsciously the discipline of good work, you know, the mm-hmm. elements of good work. Hey, there's Kate and um, Cal. Sorry, members of our church just drove by. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> um, and anyways, yeah, so you're right. Like the goal, like everything for preaching so far has been so conscious effort. It's been like, I don't know how sentences should be structured to translate well to public speaking, you know, like mm-hmm. that kind of thought. And over the last couple months, I feel like some of those things are starting to click in place where I don't have to, I don't have to think as heavily about them, Yeah, but I'm still got a long way to go. Well, the thing is, is just, you know, you hear this from comedian. I will, I hear it from comedians all the time because I listen to comedian podcasts all the time. And, uh, yeah. The one thing they always say is, you know, everybody thinks they can be a comedian because other people tell them they're funny, but then they get up onto a stage and all of a sudden they are the most not funny person in the room, (laughs) you know? And that's because it's, because it's, there's a different way of communicating between just like an interpersonal, informal, jocular, back and forth kind of funny versus being on a stage in front of a bunch of strangers being funny. And they're just two different right. ways of, of communicating, and they're literally two different ways of speaking. Like it's like a, almost like a different language you have to learn how to speak. I think the same is true of preaching. Like you can sit down and have a conversation about the Bible and be very helpful with the person one on one or even in a small group setting, but getting up in front of a church on a Sunday morning and giving a 40 minute soliloquy, basically just an exposition of a text. That's like learning a new language. You have to, it's like, it's literally like learning a new language. The sentences that work in any other setting don't necessarily translate in that situation. So it's, and it's just one of those things you got to get a feel for. And I can tell you, that's why, that's why I was saying, man, I was just really impressed when I heard you this last week. I was like, man, whatever he is doing, he needs to keep going that direction. Cause that, that was really good. I really, I, I really that. appreciated. I yeah, I really appreciated your just everything you did with that. It was really good, man. Your gospel application going to Romans five at the end, you know, where you know, um, where we were God's enemies and He loved us. Oh man, it was, it was, yeah. it was really good. I, I was really encouraged hearing that. So I appreciate that. Thank you, man. Yeah. So in terms of church planting, so you guys are looking at possibly launching in a uh, publicly launching that is in October, November or earlier. Yeah, hopefully. So we're, we're working more with goals. Okay. Super time specific metrics. So um, right now we're at a venue that doesn't have any heat. And so, Sunday morning, um, well, let me back up. So the whole goal coming into Clinton was try to culture or try to foster a culture of, of missional community. Mm-hmm. Um, like get people in the home, get them around the table. And that way we, we can invite neighbors and coworkers, all these sorts of people that instill in them that church is not just, you know, Sunday morning. It's 
it's the whole identity of the people together in community. And so Wednesdays, we started doing community groups like a year ago, and that's been great. But we also realized we needed something on Sunday mm-hmm. because we had a core team of people that were, you know, they left their churches or, you know, they'd moved or whatever, and they didn't have a Sunday morning. Um, and then the gospel being preached, we weren't taking communion together, mm-hmm. you know, singing songs together, all those things that we believe are super important. We weren't doing that. And so I felt like we needed to do a core team thing. On Sunday morning. Yeah. So we did. So we were meeting Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings in our house, um, both of those things, every single week. And it became too much for Holly and I to prepare for. Yeah. Um, it just was taking too much of a toll for the Sunday morning thing. Mm-hmm. And so we we needed to move the core team out. And so St. Irenaeus Church, it's an old Catholic church in mm-hmm. Clinton, and that building... Um, just is available and nobody really uses it that often. And so we were going to go over there. That's when we moved our core team Sunday morning gatherings. Well, nice. we slowly made it more of like a soft launch. Where we're opening it up to people who are interested in our church plant, um, who, you know, don't have a church or they're looking for a church because the pandemic has disrupted so many things. And so we, we found that, or at least I found that the, the community group, setting in the home is pretty intimidating to most people who grew up, especially in small town, Iowa, like, like around here, like yeah. people don't just typically associate, Hey, I'm going to try this new church out by going to this person's house. Yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of weird. They don't have a category for that. So yeah. as soon as we started inviting people to our core team thing at St. Irenaeus, people were like, Oh yeah, cool. I'll come to church. Okay. And so that, I don't know. I found that to be helpful because, yeah, there are some people that did not have a church who were looking for some sort of church thing that would not come uh, on Wednesday nights. And so they would come on Sundays, though. And so yeah. we have, we've been doing that. So we haven't had like a proper launch. Like, hey, we're going to, you know, make it really public and promote it and say this is where church here, open, welcoming for to anyone who wants to come apart of this thing. We haven't had that. And so we're, what we're working with now is we can't be at St. Irenaeus when it gets cold because there's no heat in the building. It's an old, it's an old church that had, you used to have an old boiler and the historical society hasn't paid to put in heat for the building. Yeah. And, um, and I remember so, last, what was last year you guys did your Lent thing there and you were like, tell people, bring your gloves. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I tried to spin it like, it's Christmas caroling or something, you know, it's uh-huh. cold, wear your coat and gloves. Um, was it pretty but, cold in there? Yeah, it was pretty cold in there. It wasn't terrible though. When you think about spending a half hour singing outside, like you have none of the outside wind. Yeah. So you're inside. It's, it's not bad, but it's not also very hospitable. No. You know? like, <laughs> nobody wants to bring kids in that, into that environment. Yeah. Yeah. So we, <laughs> got to get out of there and uh, and so there's a member of our church who bought an old downtown building next to the coffee shop that I like to go to and they are renovating that space it's an old Eagles club they're renovating that to be like an event center something that they can use and we're going to rent from them oh, uh, cool. a portion of it on, on Sunday mornings and so it's actually going to be very similar to Noche like okay. brick Brick walls, wood floor, you know, tall ceilings, just a kind of a blank canvas, and we'll go in, set up. I don't, I don't know the logistics of like onsite, onsite storage and all that yet, but that's what we'll do Sunday mornings, and hopefully we can get into that building um, within the next couple months. I don't think it's going to be sooner than that, just because there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. But um, if we can get in, I would say the fall. Yeah, I was shooting midsummer or end of summer, but uh, that was before. Like, there was a space up upstairs in the Eagles Club that we could have used like more immediately. Yeah, because it was closer, but it wasn't as cool. And um, the owner of the building was he was open to renovating, taking like a lot of the old 
laminate flooring and old uh, wood paneling and old drop ceiling. He was willing to take some of that stuff out of this one room. And I was like, cool, let's do it. Let's make it cool. So, mm-hmm. Oh, that's good. We're waiting. Yeah, we're waiting on that. The project needs to be finished, and then we'll go in. Then we'll launch. Nice. So it's how many like, How many people will hold? How many people will hold? Um, quite a size of Noche. Okay. Um, a little over 100? Maybe a little. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would say 100, 120. Oh, that's cool. Maybe. It would be pretty packed in there at 100, 120. Very good. And so you you got when did you guys leave and start your work in Clinton? What, how long ago was that now? Um, June. I think we left in June. Um, okay. Like, so it's been a little uh, over a year. Yeah, it was like June or July. But we started gathering people in our house in September. Okay. So it hasn't been a year. Hasn't been a year since you started. It's almost been a year since we started gathering people for community group. And we've been doing the Sunday morning thing since October. But we haven't been doing public Sunday morning stuff since, I don't know, maybe two months ago, three months ago. Okay. Very good. And you've got, it's not, I've been watching, not as closely as I would like, but watching a little bit, it sounds like you got some leaders that you're raising up and, and yeah, that, that's great, man. That's awesome. Yeah. We have um, a couple that's going to start a community group shortly. They just renovated their house that they were moving into. They hadn't moved in yet. And I think last week they moved in and so that we're letting them get settled and then we're going to ramp up like the ending portion of the training and just whatever else they we we're really leaning on them like just to make sure that they don't feel rushed into having people over in their house is barely you know it's barely ready for that yeah so whenever they feel more settled they're gonna launch a community group so we'll have two community groups and then um we got a couple people that are going <laughs> Sunday morning taking on more responsibility for Sunday morning team leadership yeah so Got a guy, buddy of mine I went to high school with, his name's Ben, and he's really helping us out a lot, do some of the, like, Sunday morning logistics and, you know, operations kind of stuff. And then April, you know, you know April. Oh, I know April, yeah. She is going to be doing kids ministry stuff. Oh, that's great, man. Yeah. That's awesome. They're, They're great. They have been taking on responsibility just doing whatever we need done on Sunday morning. So well, that's great. Pretty excited about that. And so um, now when you, when you're doing your Sunday meetings right now, do you, are you doing like the full sort of worship service like you in, intend to do at your public launch or are you, are you doing yeah. kind of a stripped down version of that? It's sort of abbreviated. It's, you know, and I, I should communicate. I don't think I've ever communicated this to people <laughs> publicly, but it's basically what we did at Frontier um, in the pilot launch. Okay. Except we preach. So at the pilot launch at Frontier, Cole didn't preach. And it was like paper liturgy guides. So, you know, you come in, there's no lyrics on any screens, mm-hmm. no projectors. Just here's the paper. It's got the song lyrics on it, the uh, confessional liturgy, and then... Um, this is the text that I'm preaching on. And so we sing, we sing and do liturgy only what fits on that page. So that's, that ends up being about four songs and uh, a couple liturgy spots that are pretty short okay. and condensed. So I would like to do at least five songs okay. um, a Sunday and then um, just kind of have more freedom and flexibility with the liturgy mm-hmm. because having screens, you know, you know, you have more freedom to put yeah. stuff on screens and jump, jump back and forth between slides. So very good. I'd like to be able to do that, do more of that. That's cool. That's cool. Now in terms of like your, um, at least what can be seen on the outside, what, what are the differences between hope city and frontier? Mm. Like I should say, is there anything 
that Frontier did that you wanted to kind of tweak or put your little Nick Powell spin on and do a little bit differently? Or were you hoping to kind of pull over most things from Frontier into your... Well, originally, like, if you looked at our... Like, I handed out a big packet of our philosophy of ministry, like our mission, values, philosophy of ministry. I had a whole packet that I handed to our original core team. Okay. That this is what our this is what our vision is for planting this church. And it was pretty much exactly from Frontier. I mean, I tweaked with some of the language uh-huh. um, a little bit, but, you know, gospel community mission, um, you know, mission statement uh, being the same, just so for the joy of Des Moines, maybe for Clinton. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like coming in to Clinton, I wanted to, for sanity's sake, I, I didn't want to reinvent the wheel in yeah. places that I didn't feel like I had to. Uh, and then just see what happened. And what I've noticed over the last year, I'm so thankful that we didn't just like run in and start a service, like public service and just do everything from the start. Mm-hmm. Uh, is because I'm learning the context here is different. Mm-hmm. And even from growing up here, it's different from what I remember. Yeah. Plus, I never lived here. Like, I never actually lived here since being a believer. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up in church, but I, I wasn't a believer until college. And so now that I have, you know, more gospel-centered eyes and just more experience in church and life, living here with my family, being on mission, has allowed me to see Clinton in a little bit of a different light. And so, like, one major difference, for example— is the best the best analogy I've thought of is you know how like in a in a really really modern house where everything is white clean lines um, everything's new super sleek and modern um, you put one of those like gnarly uh, slab tables in there like yeah live edge slab table mm-hmm. well that looks really cool because you're like man that's a pop of old gnarly wood. And it feels cool and rugged in, in the context of all of that modern around it. Well, in Clinton, every it's not a modern house. It's old wood. You know? <laughs> yeah. And so it's putting an old piece of wood in an old house, it, just, it seems like more old house. Yeah. And so it doesn't pop. It doesn't pop. So there are things that Frontier does that that pops out in contrast because of its surrounding culture. Yeah. Like. Like liturgy, for example, mm-hmm. liturgy pops as kind of this really interesting, helpful. I think for a lot of people, especially millennial and Gen Zs, people who who live in a modern context where everything's new and they're scrolling on their phones constantly, um, there's not a lot of anchor, and that ancient liturgical form helps anchor people to, hey, we're doing this thing that's been done for two thousand years, mm-hmm. and it gives, uh, like Piper likes to say, ballast in our boat. Mm-hmm. And and whereas in Clinton, there aren't a lot of like modern. It's not like you have a ton of tech tech entrepreneurs sitting around at coffee shops in Clinton. Yeah, and you know, so when when most people come into like for not right now coming into Saint Irenaeus Church, most people come in and they're like, "Oh, is this a Catholic church?" And then <laughs> some of the liturgy, they're like, "Oh, this is like my Lutheran church that I grew up in." Yeah. Um, and it's and so I'm still learning, and this is me just I, I guess being totally transparent. I actually don't know how helpful liturgy is um, mm. in the context I'm in. It's helpful for me, and that's why I'm doing it because I don't really know. I don't I have enough time hasn't gone by for me to judge. Mm-hmm. Has this been a helpful practice in shaping our people to be more like Jesus? Mm. And. Um, I certainly don't have anybody coming going, oh, I'm so thankful you do liturgy. Okay. But I don't have anybody saying the opposite either. No one's saying, this sucks. I don't understand it at all. There, there's been a couple people that will say, it seems like, it's. I don't understand why you do it, because it seems like rote Lutheranism that I came from. Hmm. Um, so the liturgy thing, I don't know that it's different, but at Frontier, oh, and also the like, um, you know, when Frontier planted, doctrinally being doctrinally reformed was a really big flag that was waved. Mm-hmm. Like Cole was blogging a lot about sovereignty of God, predestination, Calvinistic themes. You know, there's a lot of stuff that came from Cole in the pulpit. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and that a lot of that was inherited from Redeemer. Yeah. Don, Pastor Donovan was just like really forward with Calvinism. Mm-hmm. And that was really helpful for a lot of people because I think a lot of people were coming from this sort of non-denominational, um, vanilla, yeah. like, hey, this is just about loving God, loving people. And then the sermon was more about like five ways you can like have a healthy marriage, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But, but being very explicitly doctrinally um, sound mm-hmm. stuff. Like I, th- I felt like that was really an emphasis of frontier early on, and um, I don't know. Like in Clinton, there, I don't know. There's, there, there's for whatever reason, um, in Des Moines, where it's a bigger population, what that ends up attracting is a lot of people who are super passionate about um, heady things. Like this is so rabbit trail, but you know, like Jordan Peterson talks about how. For whatever reason, men are wired to like things mm-hmm. more than women are. Yeah, yeah. And so that leads there to be a greater representation in some of the fields like engineering. Yeah, There's just more men in engineering because men are just wired to like like manipulating things and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of engineers that doctrinally reform churches. Yes. And I think part of that's because they love the conceptual frameworks and the things. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. Like, tell me the things about Christianity. Mm-hmm. And I think you're 100 percent right about that. Very different yeah. a blue collar situation. Yeah, so you're we're a working class community where yeah. people manipulate things all day, but it's not it's not because they have any sense of freedom intellectually to do what they're doing. It's it's they're manipulating the bare minimum things on their assembly line um, to get paid. And the, I'm not saying the jobs aren't good. The jobs. A lot of good jobs are on a Clinton, but the worker, as opposed from the engineer, the worker isn't obsessed, as obsessed with um, abstract conceptual things. And yeah. so then typically when those guys come into church settings, if they're in a church setting, they're not obsessed with doctrine. Um, it feels they, more like work to them than it does like yeah. worship. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it wears them out in a way that, cause, yeah. Yeah. I don't know that I have all the, ways to articulate that but Clinton there's just less people I feel like that want to run towards a doctrinally reformed church plus learning something about more about me I'm just I have a little bit more of a artistic bent mm-hmm. um, which which for whatever reason creativity like when you're in the creative headspace you have to tolerate more ambiguity yeah and and that's usually not this headspace you're in when you're trying to do some doctrinal mechanics, you know, like I have long held the opinion, long held the opinion that the reformed community and reformed theology has an aversion to creativity. Um, everything uh, they talk a big game about the beauty of God and the beauty of, but, um, there's very, very little patience for creativity and i think it has to do something something to do with abstraction i don't know if you want to get into that but you know art is inherently abstracts it always it's it's always you know a painting is an abstraction from the individual and you know the more abstract literally the more further you abstract the more abstract the painting or the representation becomes and i think the reform community prefers things to be on the nose <laughs> and, right. and, yeah. and and the further abstract or the more abstract something gets, the more uncomfortable people become in the reform community. And I think they just yeah. assume that something being abstract is inherently suspicious. Yeah. yeah. Cause you, the and boundaries aren't as clear. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, link that in with the, charismatic or Pentecostal movement or more expressions mm-hmm. in that tribe. And, and you have this, you have a lot of people who are a lot of creative people who resonate with more of the charismatic expressions of Christianity Yes, because there's more tolerance. I feel like for some of the ambiguity of like, I'm not really sure how God's working here, but I'm going to really try to listen and, mm-hmm. and be obedient. And I feel like the emotiveness of Christianity, like oh, I feel the nearness of God mm-hmm. and you know, you know better than I do. 
a lot of reformers aren't comfortable with that language because, yes. um, you know, I feel God. Well, well, God, you feel God when you, you know, like, like God, God speaking to me. Sometimes people will say, oh, I feel God speaking to me. Mm-hmm. And some really rigid, rigidly doctrinally reformed person would say, well, you don't need to feel God speaking to you. You just need to read your Bible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which, and the thing is, is they're like, both right. It's just hard to articulate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the problem right, is, exactly. is, yeah, sorry, I'm cutting you off. No, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> well, I was going to say, and, and you find the opposite um, intolerance on that sort of creative, charismatic side, where um, whereas a reformed person would be suspicious of the ambiguity and abstractness of the creative side, the more charismatic and creative will tend to be suspicious and resist clear boundaries and clear lines. Um, So, and that, and that, you know, that's, I mean, I think at the end of the day, the, the sort of charismatic cessationist debate is far less about what to do with Bible verses and a lot more to do with how to draw the lines. Yeah. And totally. And whether or not a person is, is, comfortable or uncomfortable with ambiguity and mm-hmm. yeah so i could see that so one of the things too that i've noticed is that there's in clinton i would say that there's in this area there's a higher i don't know it seems more receptive and ripe to um charismatic expressions of christianity and so are you pulling more, a mark uh, driscoll on us what's that <laughs> Say? Yeah, are you pulling a Mark Driscoll on us? Yeah, yeah. Reform reform people are now all just guys that have daddy issues. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and yeah. he's 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 an apostle now in a charismatic church. So <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, I have a theory about that, at least in this area, is that you know uh there's a, like there's a sense of well let me treat it in a really extreme example so spiritualism which isn't even christianity it's yeah. like pagan but spiritualism is this whole like necromancing is what the bible calls it like mm-hmm. conjuring the dead and there's table knocking yeah and you know you talk to the ghost of abraham lincoln and he tells you something well back in the day that was super popular um like especially during the abolition movement mm-hmm. so in the Victorian era and then in New York during the abolition movement, there were women and minorities and people who were, who were being oppressed and had no voice or sense of efficacy, like that they could control their own destiny, mm-hmm. those types of things. Um, spiritualism resonated with them because it gave them uh, a greater sense of control and efficacy in their life. If you could, you know, if a woman sat down and was able to talk to the dead spirits, Mm-hmm. And, you know, people were coming to pay money to have her release some esoteric knowledge to them. Well, then she was in a really a big position of power where she would never have had that platform for power in any other sphere of her life. And so spiritualism, um, well, there was a spiritualist camp in Clinton for, I think, a hundred years. I mean, it was a long time. Hmm. And it was on the bluffs. It was its own commune. I'm pretty sure it was called the Mississippi Valley Spiritualist uh, Association. Wow. And they were, uh, yeah, it was communal living. Spiritualism was a big deal. And that's partly because Clinton was settled by people from New York, from Hmm. out east. They brought some of that with them. And so over the years, not to say spiritualism itself had an influence on charismatic Christianity here, but... I just think in a place that's been historically a worker town, a place that has had a lot of people who had had no power mm-hmm. and sense of efficacy in their life, I think that the more charismatic forms of spiritualism or spirituality, I should say, sorry, the more charismatic forms of spirituality um, where God speaks to a person and you can live out the stuff you see in the Bible, like you can actually live it out in a personal way. Mm-hmm. Um, that stuff speaks to people who have been historically marginalized and disaffected mm-hmm. and so this area has a lot of those people that they may not be willing to jump in and talk about heavy doctrine mm-hmm. but they're willing to be around a movement that seems to give power to the powerless 
Yeah. And that was what it's one of the things I've noticed here. So I don't necessarily know what to do with that, but I just I've noticed that. That's cool. So you so you take you you started with sort of the frontier template and you're attempting, it sounds like, to sort of uh, contextualize it into the people of Clinton. Yeah, it's exactly like what we do with sermons, where you have the exegetical outline, mm-hmm. and then you try to make the exegetical outline into your sermon outline. Mm-hmm. And so I have this raw material that I came in from Frontier with, um, which I would consider to be the exegetical outline. Yeah, and And as I've lived here, I've learned more about the culture here. And so I feel better positioned to be able to contextualize that raw material into something more helpful for this context. And so like going through church, uh, what was it called? We went through our, um, training through the send network. Mm-hmm. Like I was a part of recently, I just finished, it was like eight weeks or something, eight or nine weeks. And we went through Will Mancini's church unique. Okay. And and the whole premise behind that is trying to help a planter or an existing church articulate what is what is unique about your particular church and like what what makes your church distinct from other churches in a healthy way you mm-hmm. know like we all have the same mission and goal like making disciples um, glorifying God but we have a unique expression of that as a, as a unique family of God. And so Will Mancini's Church Unique was like, hey, how do you how do you free yourself up and articulate your, your mission statement, your values, things like that in a way that's actually helpfully unique? And I thought it was actually pretty helpful for me. It makes sense because uh, that means all you would need to do is just buy everybody a black Carhartt t-shirt and they would all fit in. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Take on the the Johnny Cash ethos. There's a bunch of brooding number fours walking around, acting, you know, <laughs> trying to convince did, everybody else. Did you literally that. just put out? You you just you did put out an enneagram reference <laughs> right to my face. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Well, go what so uh, so. I know you had a, well, just like me, you've had a very positive experience with Frontier. What was one thing, now that you've been out now and you're coming up on a year uh, meeting with folks in Clinton, what is yeah. what is one or two things that Frontier did that you're like, this has been, th- this influence or this particular thing that Frontier did is is like gold. I need to keep a hold of this. This is, this is working oh, for me. Easy. Gospel centeredness. Yes. That's yeah, easy. I think that that's the main thing. I feel like the, um, the way Cole drove that from the pulpit from day one, that, you know, every sermon, every, you know, message that we send is all about the crucified Christ and how we mm-hmm. are free from sin and risen with him. Like those, that basic message, um, and 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 getting at that from every angle, I just think that blows people's minds. I remember Cole Cole saying to me one time, you know, I was talking to him about how sometimes my temptation is to not be specific with the gospel because I assume the gospel, mm-hmm. you know, like the simple the simple observations of the gospel. And he said, "Dude, you never uh, never underestimate the power in." showing people the simple gospel, like the simple gospel observations, because that blows a lot of people's minds because they were never told that, Mm -hmm. you know, they were, they were never told how David and Goliath references Jesus as the David and not just you Mm -hmm. as being able to slay Goliaths in your life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So that the gospel centerpiece has has got to be still the forefront. I got to keep, I'm convinced that's the, the horse I need to be riding. That's awesome. Anything else that sticks out? Um, I don't, I think the ministry minimalism thing early on, um, was helpful. I Mm -hmm. saw the way that, that a lot of people coming from church experiences that were very much like, you know, the church is trying to do everything and and program everybody's felt needs. 
mm-hmm. to try to keep them at the church. Like, oh, we got a men's and a women's ministry, mm-hmm. every age group, separate ministries, all this stuff. And I felt I found it helpful for a church plant to be able to just unashamedly say, we're here to do the main thing. We can't do everything. Yeah. So here's what we believe is the main thing. And if, if, if you're not jiving with that, that's fine. We get it. We're a church plant. Like, this might not be best for you. Um, yeah. But that freedom and being able to say, this is where we're going to, these are the hills that we're going to die on and, and really no other hills, I think was helpful, a helpful limiter. But I will say that would also be the thing that I would challenge now that I've stepped away from Frontier is that I think, you know, ministry minimalism, I think, is a temporary thing. I think what ministry minimalism, you know, having only a very, very, very small set of official church ministries, what I think that has the potential to do is create risk averseness. Mm. You you end up saying, I don't want to do any cool new things that the Lord might be putting on our lap because we only do Sunday mornings, community groups, mm. and groups. Yeah. Yeah. You can't, you don't, it's not something you want to hold to rigidly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Because it's not in scripture. So it's not, it's not gospel. Yeah. Um, it's helpful for a time. And I think especially, well, it's helpful for Christians who are burnt out mm-hmm. because it gives them a safety net. Like, Oh man, they're not going to ask me to do everything mm-hmm. at this church and burn me out. Um, yeah. Cause that does I happen. Do What's that? That does happen. Yeah. And I think with yeah, good intentions, but it, it good yeah. Yeah. I think people are well-intended, but I, I can, I speak from experience, you know, having planted years ago, my thought was we're going to go work. We're here to work. And I didn't think about the fact that this was a marathon, not a sprint. <laughs> and, right. and yeah, you can only push people and, and, Put people to work for so long before they tire out i mean we're limited creatures we need yeah so i think you're right i think i i love the idea of ministry minimalism in the early phases of a church plant but i do think you're right that it's probably more a seasonal thing more than a um, like a whole ministry paradigm yeah yeah you know because you know like kids for example you don't have any kids or you have young families that our kids are all like preschool age. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden 10 years you have a youth group. And if you're like, Oh, we're not going to do a youth group. Then you, yeah. you have yeah. 50 kids maybe that you're not, <laughs> you're not investing in in an intentional way. So, yeah. I don't know. No, I, yeah, I think, yeah. Yeah. I think there, there's a lot of, a lot of things like that, that I think are, are, they're they're good in a in a particular you know, like ministry minimalism is one of those things that's good in the right context, but it can yep. also it can it can it can slow you down in other it, where where it may serve you and actually enhance your ministry in one context and another context it can actually slow you down and actually prevent you from being you know doing faithful ministry to people who need it in another context. Yeah. So it's yeah. It's not a, not an inherent good. Yeah. So now, I you know I'm thinking and praying about church planting and trying to figure out how to how to manage <laughs> how to manage all that. Thinking about you know doing church planting again and all that. So my question to you is: is now you have you've gone out and you've now been gathering people and starting to work you're starting your own traditions you're starting your own sort of you're you're developing in the middle of developing a culture and by virtue of that already have a culture developed and and i've been thinking a lot about church culture my question to you is is what do you think that you what is what do you think that you've done well that w- that's transferable elsewhere in terms of like developing the culture and raising up leaders and all that. Like what, what has been working well for you? Uh, I would say, and I didn't get this by myself. I, I would say creating a culture of encouragement. So Cole, Cole is really good at that. Like mm-hmm. I saw the way that 
a leader has a real um, uh, potential, has the capacity to really encourage people. And then like that holds a lot of weight. Like I remember Cole, um, oh, I, I, like I wasn't a very good preacher when I first started preaching and Cole is a good coach because he, you know, such a good wrestling coach. He is, he knows how much the power of positive encouragement has to create something that maybe isn't even there. Mm-hmm. So like, look at this guy. We love Nick. He's going to preach. We love what he's doing. We love, you know, what God's working in his life. And then everyone in the room is like, yeah, we love this. Whereas, you know, if you're not explicitly encouraging people like fellow leaders, especially then people just kind of, they just interpret that maybe we're not crazy about this guy. Mm. You know, you just kind of leave people to their own devices. And I think most people's default mode is being critical. And so I realized that Clinton, this culture here in Clinton is a culture of negativity. Mm. And, and I just, it's so easy for me personally to be motivated by what not to be. And, you know, having bad examples in my life that I'm just, I'm not going to be that. We're not going to be that church. We're not going to mm. be that, you know, whatever. And then and we end up not being anything because we're just an anti-church or an anti-vision. Yeah. And You're the emo church. So I, yeah, exactly. And I'm like, we're not doing that. So yeah, yeah. especially in a culture where their churches are in, you know, like we got a couple churches in town that are in kind of choppy waters right now. Mm-hmm. And nobody should delight to see that yeah but it would be very easy for me as a leader to say hey this church sucks it's unhealthy and toxic and build a platform on that Mm. because people then go go, yeah you're right that church does suck and then they just kind of want to come be around us because we're the church that hates the same things they hate yeah that's not the culture you want (laughs) yeah no no and so like we had a, a dinner the other night where I was trying, it was like a, you know, I was platforming some leaders into a role of, of deacon or servant leadership. And I was like, Hey, you guys, what I want to do is we're going to go around the room. There's like four of us. And I said, give everyone, give this person, um, one specific piece of encouragement, just one, one very specific thing of how they've been, uh, you know, how they've, you've seen God work in their life or whatever, just be an encouragement to them. And that was really cool. I saw everybody encourage one another in a way that wasn't natural. And I've seen the way that I, I believe I've seen the way that that has influenced how people talk about our city. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, there's times where gossip could happen, but then like I see people checking themselves being like, well, but we need to, you know, we need to focus, not just be positive, but we're trying to build a culture, you know, I want to build a culture of Christian, like I want to build a culture of Hope City Church around Jesus and what we can do and what the possibilities are here, rather than just saying, "Well, we're not these churches." Yeah, and that it's very tempting. Yeah, it is. That, but I'm trying to resist that. Yeah, yeah. The the comparison game, because you know, as much as as much as we don't, we want to resist and truly deal with the reality that we're not in competition with other churches a lot of those comments are actually evidence that that people feel threatened by the presence of other churches and yeah and it creates a competitive spirit that's unhealthy so that's good i'm glad glad that's that's helpful is there anything that you've that you've done that uh, you regretted i don't know i don't know if there's enough in my rearview mirror yet (laughs) <laughs> uh, nothing obvious no I feel like uh, getting hurt you know cutting my arm uh, oh yeah punching you, you punching here. through windows right yeah getting angry yeah <laughs> and you know getting airlifted to Iowa City and yeah um, I felt like yeah it was the first time in my life I felt like I was going to die and just kind of the implications of that uh, for Holly, you know, she was, she's still kind of carrying with her some of the trauma of that. Mm. And that has really put a, it's put the brake pedal on a lot of things, to be honest, because, you know, uh, like I had to go to physical therapy twice, twice a week. And that recently just ended. 
Um, it's yeah. not because I'm like completely better. It's just my insurance visits ran out. Yeah. And so I have, uh, I spent like almost a year, I feel like a uh, better part of a year, like twice a week for hour long visits at the physical therapist's office. So, I mean, I don't know what that amounts to be like three hours a week counting drive time and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, right in the middle of the day that that took away from me. Um, I can't do some of the things that I love to do. Mm-hmm. Typing is really difficult for me. So, you know, writing sermons, all of it is just like, there's, it's just a little bit harder than it used to be. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like it's just slower. Uh, my pace of ministry here has just been slower than what I intended it to be. When I yeah. moved here, I was like, oh, we're going to bang through this house, you know, restore this house. Um, I'm going to start this, blo- you know, blogging platform and I'm going to influence a ton of people. And, you know, we're going to plant this church and make disciples, reach all the lost people in Clinton. And I was pretty jazzed about it. Now I just feel, um, I don't know, I just feel weak. I feel like, yeah, I have some strengths, but at the end of the day, um, I don't really know how this thing is going to, like, like I'm not strong enough to just make this church grow by the sweat of my brow. And it puts me in a place of dependence on the power of God. Mm. And so I'm mostly just really receptive I'm still just trying to learn like, yeah, I'm going to preach. I know that we should be doing that. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to be meeting with people trying to lead people to Jesus, trying to get other people to do the same. But, um, when it comes down to it, I don't know, like regretting things. I I don't really know what to regret because I feel like I want to do more, but I'm powerless to push the, push the pace more. Mm-hmm. So the injury for me has really like that really colored. That's colored so much. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like I'm like Quinn Cole said at the beginning of church planning at Frontier in Des Moines. He was saying how we're fullback church. You know, we're an Iowa offense. We run the fullback up the gut. Mm-hmm. We're we're gonna shoot for two, three, five yard gains, and and that you know we need to be in it for the long haul. So I feel like. I'm in it for the long haul and, and that's kept me from doing things. I feel like that I really regret Maybe yeah. going back to St. Irenaeus. I might regret that. Um, someday <laughs> no. <laughs> like, I might be like, Oh shoot. People were really scared off by this scary old Catholic church. But <laughs> I don't know if people stick with us through that, then you know what I mean? Like they'll stick with us through anything. If they're going to sit in this church that doesn't have air conditioning, Um, (laughs) yeah that's cool that's good good yeah and you know the good thing is the lord is forcing you to learn the truth of john 15 5 apart from me Uh you can do nothing he's teaching you that um he makes perfect his power and weakness um so, you know, it, I mean, it sucks to have your arm jacked up, but mm-hmm. it's also he's put you in a, in a position to where uh, to probably to where you're more useful. Yes. You know, you, yes. you you've had to that. you've had to you've had to focus like re reevaluate your approach in order to accommodate your circumstances that are, and, and that re and that, that different approach is probably better for you and for your church. Yes, totally. I mean, yeah. I remember the first two weeks of being in Clinton and I, my adrenaline was pumping, you know, Holly had just had Cora and we just sold our house in Des Moines. You know, we bought our house in Clinton. We landed in Clinton, it's this old house. And we were getting everything ready and it was just like a flurry of stuff. And I was hitting my planner every day, just mm. like really, you know, I felt a sense of self-assurance and I was, I wouldn't have said, I mean, at the time I probably would have said the same thing, like, Oh yeah, this isn't going to work unless God makes it work. Mm-hmm. But you know, at the end of the day, I was like, I'm going to make this work. <laughs> and when I got hurt, I had to force my, I had to reckon with like, I just can't swing a hammer anymore. And so, Mm. You know, I can't build this thing on my own strength and I literally can't grip the hammer. I can't write, you know, so there's, 
there's a dependence that comes out of like a practical circumstance. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, what I've been saying with my mouth and my mind and my spiritual, the spiritual stuff now is very, very practical for me. And so it forced me to be like, well, I can't be a professional woodworker, you know, get a spot on HGTV because I restored <laughs> the town, you know, yeah. like li- live in hometown, you know, like, <laughs> with, uh, a show on HGTV. Yeah. The, yeah. The, yeah. The, um, I think it's hometown. Yeah, the hometown with Ben and Eric. Yeah, ben, and, Ben's a freaking stud. I love that dude. Yeah. You know, the funny thing is, is that when the lumber industry disrupted here in Clinton, uh, some of those lumber barons went down to Laurel, Mississippi. Did they really? So, yes. Yeah, so there, there's like a museum and some other stuff down there that was started by, you know, basically Clinton money. Hmm. Like Clinton money went down to Laurel, Mississippi. So... Um, anyway, so the hometown thing like that Chip and Jojo kind of vibe, like we're going to come in and restore this town vibe. Um, God humbled me and was like, you, uh, <laughs> you need to focus on the main thing. I, you know, it, it didn't drop you here to get an HGTV show. I dropped you here to plant this church and make disciples. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I mean, it's, yeah, you know, it's a mixed bag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I still want to restore the town. Yeah. I also want to play the church, so it's still a tension, and I don't know. It's fun. Yeah. So, so in other words, Paul's thorn in the flesh could have just been his hand going through a window. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll put that there. Yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> Good. Well, hey, uh, I I just wanted to ask you one more thing before I let you go because I know you, you got a busy day today. Um, uh, you know, with me thinking about planting now that you, now that you've got some experience under your belt here with trying to pull this thing off, what what kind of uh, as I'm in the stages of preparation, dreaming, planning assessment all that what 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 are some things that you would uh encourage me to consider or do or think um during this time to take advantage of this time Um, i guess is most fully i don't know speaking from my own just speaking from my own circumstances like what i said about encouragement i've felt god just really impress on me that I need to become, uh, I need to become more Christ-like, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm at my best when I'm focusing on being like Jesus and encouraging one another out of that posture of, you know, Hey, we're going to become like Christ and we're going to, you know, by the power of the Holy spirit, we're going to go bear with one another in love. We're going to call people to this mission of making disciples. And, um, I think right now our culture is so divided with different tribal groups that I feel the practical temptation of using my platform. You know, I, I could like craft more blogs and sermons that are abrasive and, you know, Oh yeah, let's like demonize this group over here. That's easy to take shots at yeah. and then win followers because other people want to take shots at that group too. They just don't know how to articulate it. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a really tempting thing. And you know, I don't just end up going full Douglas Wilson overnight, you know, <laughs> Dougie Dougie W. I like a lot of what Douglas Wilson guys like Douglas Wilson write. Uh huh. Um, but the, there's a tone to it that I just feel like personally, it's out of step with my uh, temperament and what I feel like is the temperament of a pastor. Yes. Um. So, and I'm not saying I need to become like Mr. Rogers and just totally just like turtlenecks and sweaters. And but I think there's a sense of um, you know, like I need to call people to become the journey of becoming like Christ and becoming like Christ looks a lot like what Christ did was die and enter into long suffering, search mm-hmm. out the one at the expense of the 99, you know, those types of things, which is going to make me very useless in certain elements of trying to restore the city of Clinton. Yes. Like I didn't come to Clinton to be a, a cutthroat politician. No. For example. Um, and I didn't come to Clinton to simply have my pastoral ministry be a, a platform for me to write books and stuff like that. And I, I you know, 
I don't know. I'm just trying to think like being a pastor and becoming like really growing into the temperament of a pastor that is based on the character of Jesus. Mm -hmm. I think that to me has helped me practically weather through some, just the early stages of, um, I don't even know how you articulate it. Like when you have all the freedom, when you're, when you're planting the church and responsible for establishing a lot of the early stages of this thing, there's a ton of freedom to be able to structure your day. Um, the reading that you read, like no one's telling me what to do. Mm -hmm. And so it's really tempting to wander off into the weeds and get off the reservation. And, um, I just think sticking close to Jesus and becoming, and a lot of that looks like me just dying to myself and encouraging other people. So I found the most practical, helpful practice that I've implemented since becoming a pastor is the art of encouragement. Mm -hmm. I, I found it to be the most personally transforming practices is to just put a disciplined effort in to, to look at and notice other people and say, Hey, you did a great job here. And then call everybody else to attention. Like, Hey, look, didn't, didn't this guy do a really good job Mm -hmm. with this thing? Um, that to me, I think creates a better culture, almost, almost better than anything else I could think of. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah. The whole Ephesians 429, that kind of culture is, yeah, you can't, that's, it's so good. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. Good. Well, man, thanks, thanks for, for the question. Oh yeah, no, that's good. I'm That's, that's really helpful. Yeah. Cause that's, I mean, it's one thing, you know, when you read these, I've been, you know, cause I've been reading all these church planting church, you know, like discipleship books and all this. And some of them are so highly conceptual and like, more rooted in like philosophy of ministry. And what I like about your answer is that it's just really concrete. Just use your mouth to give grace and encourage other people. I think that that's, that's very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That's something Cole modeled. So that's not, yes, it is. That's something I just came up with. All right, dude. Well, Hey, I'll let you go. Good, good chatting with you. Thanks for taking your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm just running into Aldi right now, actually. Oh, well, very good. Say hi to Mr. Aldi. Okay, I will. All right, man. We'll talk to you later. All right. Talk to you later. Yeah, bye. Bye. The Emmaus Road Colloquy between Jesus and his disciples did not end on that day. Jesus continued teaching his people and that teaching made its way into written form. And eventually it took shape in the form of the scriptures. So if you want to fully engage Jesus and continue the conversation, then go to a good church that preaches the Bible. Spend time reading and studying the Bible for yourself and engage others that you might not only listen to, but join in on and contribute to the Emmaus Colloquy.